Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 14, Carolingian Italy. Well, when we last left things in episode 12, King Charles of the Franks, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, had defeated the Lombard king Desiderius and his son Adelchi in 774. The Lombard capital, Pavia, had fallen and Desiderius was sent to a monastery in France and his wife to a convent. Now, Charlemagne was one of the most important figures in history. So, it's not like we're the first ones to talk about him. Therefore, I'm going to give myself two rules. The first is to talk about him with specific reference only to Italian issues. And the second is to see if I can't mention some interesting facts that perhaps you wouldn't hear every day. Let's start with the latter. So, fun facts about Charlemagne. Number one. He loved pecorino cheese. Sheep's cheese. Now, you may say, so, I mean, he was French, and now he also had Italy. How could he not like cheese? Everybody likes cheese, and especially French and Italian cheese. I won't get into, obviously, a debate with our cousins on the other side of the Alps about which cheese is better. It's Italian cheese. However, he didn't actually discover this until later in life. A bishop friend of his brought him some one day. Charles had a nibble of the crust and went mental about being brought such disgusting food. When he was finally made to calm down and convinced to taste the pulp, he fell head over heels. And from that day on, he always had a chunk of pecorino with him when he travelled, and he travelled quite a lot all around his empire. Number two. He had a pet elephant called Abdul Abbas, who was given to him by the Caliph of Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid. He loved the elephant and would even chat to it and once rode it into battle. He loved it perhaps a little bit too much and spoilt it rotten, feeding it all sorts of rich food. In the end, it died of indigestion. Although another source said it was possibly pneumonia, considering the elephant had already been quite old when it arrived at the court after walking all the way from Baghdad across Africa. Charles declared a day of national mourning. So, the cheese-eating, elephant-loving future legend had defeated the Lombards with apparent ease. But why had it been so easy? After all, the military development was at a similar level, with a growing importance in the Middle Ages of heavy cavalry. As far as the state organization was concerned, that of the Lombards was rather more developed than that of the Franks having the former been in close contact with the remains of Roman administration. You may remember that we said in the last episode that their laws continued to be used for quite a while, making Italy somewhat different from the rest of the Carolingian Empire. The answer is relatively quick. The Franks were better trained, better disciplined and were united. Indeed, many of the Lombard dukes had abandoned King Desiderius at the last moment, leaving him severely weakened. That is not to say that all the Lombards just rolled over. There were some attempts at rebellion, but soon enough, the Lombard aristocracy, 
fell in line and collaborated with the new regime. Charles took the title of Rex Francorum et Longobardorum, King of the Franks and the Lombards. The Franks did not migrate en masse into Italy, but groups of counts and administrators were sent in. Some Franks, some Alemanni, some Burgundians and some Bavarians, who worked alongside the existing Lombards and Italian administrators. So, Charles used these local powers, represented by the dukes, counts and prefects, but he didn't just let them get on with it. He used a system of what you could call inspectors, the Missi Dominici, the envoys of the Lord, to keep an eye on the local nobility. These envoys were chosen from the upper levels of society and often from the clergy. They had the power to annul positions granted by the counts and even remove the counts themselves when they had been granted permission by the king. They also had the power to set up courts and administer justice. In short, they were a check on the power of the counts, in a certain sense, to protect the weaker members of society from the oppression of local power, as well as keeping an eye on the rights of the king. Part of the latter was the ever-important tax collection. Although one of the greatest possible sources of wealth, the monasteries and other ecclesiastical properties were not taxed. Charlemagne also used the clergy and the intellectuals to try and improve the cultural situation, using such men, for example, as Paulus Diaconus, one of our sources for the history of the Lombards. For this purpose, he also looked to England, where things in education were a bit further along, and he had the clergyman, scholar, poet and teacher, Alcuin, come and help him organise the cultural educational programme that was introduced in this period and remained for the rest of the Middle Ages. The syllabus covered the seven main liberal arts, divided into the trivium, which was composed of grammar, rhetoric and logic, and the quadrivium, composed of arithmetics, geometry, astronomy and music. He also created the Scola Palatina, the Palatine Academy in Aachen, the capital of his reign, to attract intellectuals from all over. For all the energy he put into the spread of culture, Charles the Great himself, try as he might, could barely read or write, something that weighed heavy upon his mind all of his life. He also had a great love for his people, at least according to his official biographer, and when he travelled around, he often stayed with the commoners in houses or in barns. He also applied a policy of price control so that people could get the basic foodstuffs, such as cereals, at affordable prices. For example, a modius, which corresponded to 52 or 63 litres of oats, was not to cost more than one denarius. Barley, no more than two. Rye, three. And wheat, four. Prices could be even lower if these cereals came from the king's own lands. The next question is, what on earth is a denarius and how much was it worth? Well, the denarius was a silver coin that was reintroduced by Charles in the 780s and became one of the basic coins in Europe for centuries to come. How much was a denarius worth? Well, around 52 to 63 litres of oats.
Now, we're talking about all this administration and learning, but what exactly were the Franks reigning over in Italy? Well, they had all of Tuscany and all of northern Italy except for Venice and the surrounding area, which was still, at least nominally, a Byzantine possession. In truth, it was already a de facto independent duchy, ruled by the Duke Maurizio Galbaio at that time and his son Giovanni. They were opposed in the city by the pro-Frankist patriarch Giovanni IV, John IV. To make a long story short, Charles was able to gain control over the city, but in time it was given back to Byzantium, and therefore substantial independence, in exchange for Constantinople recognizing Charles as the emperor. But we'll come to that in the next episode. Just a reminder here that the guys over at Talking History, the Italian Unification, have done a great miniseries on Venice, if you want to go over and listen to that. While we're in the area, in the year 778, a devastating earthquake hit the city of Treviso, killing thousands and sending the survivors fleeing to the countryside. Earthquakes and volcanic activity have been a constant in Italian history to this day. Literally, because the news of the day as I record this is yet another earthquake in central Italy, an area still reeling from the Amatrice earthquake and the earlier one in L'Aquila. Luckily this time, no one was killed or injured, but a 17th century bell tower crumbled. We could go on for ages about the artistic heritage in Italy. There is a bitter joke that says, Half of the world's artistic heritage is in Italy. The rest is safe. But that's an issue for another day. Looking towards the south, the Frankish invasion stopped the Papal States, so everything further down than Rome remained substantially Byzantine and Lombard. Indeed, the Duke of Benevento, Arici II, was very quick to declare himself Princeps Gentis Longobardorum, Prince of the Lombard people, and from that moment on, the rulers of Benevento called themselves princes, and played the Italian political game very well, surviving with their little duchy almost to the end of the 11th century, when the Normans arrived. The other southern duchy, that of Spoleto, or more central duchy, entered under the influence of the Franks, although the Pope claimed authority over it. Looking west, beyond the Tyrrhenic Sea, we have the islands of Corsica and Sardinia, Corsica was used by the Franks as a very convenient strategic position in the Mediterranean. Sardinia had been totally abandoned by the Byzantines by this time. If Italy was virtually beyond their reach, Sardinia was definitely too far away. Especially now that there was a new force dominating the Mediterranean, but we'll get to that in a couple of episodes. We can go over the organisation that they left there, now, Byzantium had taken the island from the Vandals in 534, and that is when the monastic movement they brought with them spread Christianity to the island, except for an area in the east called the Barbage, where a weak independent reign was formed with pagan influences. The rest of the island was divided into districts called Mereie, which were governed by a Judex, a Judex, from Caralis, present-day Cagliari. I mention these guys because as Sardinia is left more and more to its own devices, these giudici will assume great importance. Now, I've promised listener Amanda I would pay a bit more attention to Sardinia, and I've got a few ideas. 
Hopefully, something is on the way. Finally, there, smack bang in the middle of Italy, cutting the peninsula in half, thus making any future attempt at unification very difficult, was the creature that the Franks themselves had helped to grow, the property of Saint Peter, the Papal States. These now included not only the area around Rome, but also the land connecting it to Ravenna and the areas around that ancient imperial city. However, already showing the strong Italian tendency to independence, the inhabitants of the Ravenna area were not at all happy about being subjugated to the authority of Rome. After all, Ravenna was the more recent imperial capital that had taken the place of Rome. The Ravennati complained about the Pope, and the Pope complained about the Ravennati. Who did the Pope complain to? Who else but the King of the Franks, Charlemagne? Indeed, the Pope, not having any sort of military strength himself, had to wholly depend on the Franks. He complained vociferously and often about many things. The Archbishop of Ravenna has taken my cities. The Duke of Benevento is being mean to me. And so on. You may remember that the Pope at this time was Hadrian. Charles ignored a lot of the whining, but he did listen to some. For example, when the Duke of Benevento Arecchi started elbowing for space in 787, now that he was a prince and not just a duke, his threatening looks at the Pope's lands sent him crying to Charles, and Charles did show up with a big hairy army, and Arecchi stood down. You could probably say that this was one of the last examples of open rebellion to the authority of Charles, although passive-aggressive resistance remained. So this was the situation Charles was dealing with. Being a good ruler, he started very early thinking about how to sort out a succession. In the year 781, Charles took his son Carloman to Rome, so that the Pope could crown him and he could be raised to the throne. For some reason, the Pope decided to change the boy's name from Carloman to Pepin. I suppose one more confusing name wasn't going to make that much of a difference. Anyway, from that point on, we can speak of a Frankish kingdom of Italy, with Pepin as its king, under the regency and supervision of Charlemagne. That's where we'll leave them for now, because next week things with the new Pope are going to be fun, fun, fun. And something will happen between the Pope and Charles that will leave its mark for centuries to come. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks, in particular, this episode to April E, who got in touch via the website. Thank you very much, April.、Uh, she's planning a trip to Italy this summer, which I'm sure will be fantastic. And if you need any suggestions on places to visit, you know where to ask. You can also get in touch via email, for example, at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com,、uh, directly commenting on the website at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, where you'll find links to our social media and our YouTube channel, which hopefully will be updated soon with some new videos on Italian cities. I'm also hoping to. Do an overhaul on the site within the next few months.、Um, if I can't make it cool, at least I'll try and make it a little bit less rubbish. Please remember also to subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you very much for listening again, and until next time, arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.